If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. The Institute of Art and Ideas, articles, videos, and podcasts. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, the podcast which brings you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. This week on Philosophy for Our Times, our speakers debate the future of thought. Will Western ideas withstand the dominance of China's economic and cultural rise? So is the sun setting on Western ideas as well as Western economies? As China's meteoric economic rise leaves little doubt that it will soon eclipse the US to become the world's largest economy, should we no longer be confident in the longevity of Western thought? Or is Western thought still essential to growth and progress? And is it already embedded in China's success? To answer these questions, we have Academic Director of the Royal Institute of Philosophy, Julian Bagini, Libertarian political philosopher and former leader of New Zealand's ACT party, Jamie White, and finally Professor of Contemporary China Studies at the University of Oxford, Vivian Xu. For more on the future of Western and Chinese thought, as well as debates, talks and interviews, do head over to our website at www.iitv. And once you've finished today's episode, please do join the conversation over on Facebook or Twitter at iai underscore TV. Do let us know what you've thought. Head over to iTunes to give us a rating or a review. Thanks for listening. Back now to Isabel Hilton, who hosts this week's episode. You've had the panel introduced. So the, the question that I want to put to them is, do they think that China's influence is going to match its economic rise? By which I mean its influence on thinking, its influence on philosophy. Julian. Okay, the idea that we're moving from a situation where you know Western hegemony is, is is a default, it seems undeniable. I mean, the populations are shrinking for a start. I think in the Western European, the Western countries now make up it's certainly less than twenty percent of, of the world's population. I think it may be as little as ten to fifteen or something. We, we've got other powers, other parts of the world which are uh, growing in economic might, and where economic might grows, other kind of forms of soft power tend to follow. But then I don't really want to sort of get into sucked into this idea of, you know, Chinese ideas, Western ideas, as though there's sort of this sort of like competition, which region is going to grow. I mean, one thing that's really clear is that the world is, is now more interconnected than it ever was. And so the whole sort of notion of these sort of hermetically sealed cultures competing to be number one, hopefully will become, become less relevant. So I do think we'll see more ideas coming out of not just China, but other, other parts of the world, a little bit less of a West-dominated conversation here. I don't think it's a matter of, you know, China's inexorable rise in that kind of almost zero-sum game way of looking at it. That's all. <laughs> For now.
We will return to you. you Jamie, you're noted as a believer in Western individualism. So, so yes. can you envisage perhaps a more collective uh, approach from Chinese thinking well, I, I rising? Think, I think it will be useful to just be a bit more definite about what we're talking about here. And I don't, I, I, I'm with you, Julian. I don't care about really are these Western ideas or not. But what are the ideas that are associated with, and they partly caused, I think, the great advances in the West from the time of the Enlightenment and the Industrial Revolution on. I think the key ideas here are, in the area of inquiry, it was a rejection of authority. So the idea that when you want to know what the world's like, there's no place for authority in that area. You can't, it's not up to somebody to tell you what the truth is. You've got to find out the truth through empirical methods and so on. And that's a big part of why we've been so progressive in the West. Then in the political sphere, I think there are really two notions, two ideas that are important. And again, I'm not saying these are exclusively Western ideas, but one is equality. And what I mean by equality here is that people are born equal in the sense that they're due no legal privilege on account of their birth. And that was an important idea, not fully realized, but nonetheless, it was a principle that we adopted and it was used to criticize ourselves and to make reforms. The other idea is one to do with individual liberty. So people should be free in various respects, and we've got some basic ideas about the freedoms due to everybody, freedom of association, freedom of expression, in the economic realm, freedom of contract, and freedom of exchange, and so on. Now, these are the ideas that I think are very closely associated with the progress made in the West over recent centuries. Now, China has made a lot of economic progress recently, and it's done it by adopting some of these ideas uh, in the economic sphere. So they've moved from a centrally planned economy to something much more like a market economy in which you have some of these economic freedoms that we've had in the West for a long time. And there's been a lot of growth on the back of that. So they've adopted modern technologies and they've entered into global trade and they've made an enormous amount of progress. They haven't adopted the whole package though. They haven't got all these, what you might call civil or social or personal liberties enshrined the way we do, freedom of association and expression and so on. And there's a big question, which I don't presume to know the answer to, of whether or not their progress will continue. Will they be able to continue at this rate without those other liberties that, that we have? And I know some scholars who work on this, and most of them say that they think they're skeptical, but I don't presume to know. Now, will the progress that China has made mean that we start thinking, okay, their way of doing things might be better, their ideas might be better? Well, partly because the progress they've made has been by adopting elements of our thinking. I don't think so. But I do think that these ideas that I've been talking about are on the decline in the West. I think our commitment to them is eroding, but it's for reasons internal to us. A lot of people now believe that these principles that I've discussed are really just a license for the strong in society to push around the weak. So in economics, like in an employment contract, freedom of contract and employment, that's just a license from the employer to give the employee a bad deal. Freedom of expression is just a license for the dominant cultural views to be abusive towards people who need to be protected and so on. These ideas are on the rise and they're banging up against the general principles that I espoused. And it's an interesting question about whether the, as, as these principles fade a little or um, ameliorated, toned down, however you want to put it, Will the West continue to be as progressive as it has been? We'll have to wait and see. Thank you. Well, will uh, China's influence on thought match its meteoric rise economically? Not here in the West, I would agree. And there are some different reasons for that. I mean, the, the note of panic on the one hand and abiding superiority on the other that are embedded in the 
questions that we've been given to talk about today. I think we don't really need to take either of those as seriously as, as the tone in which they're posed. Economic success is easy to show, and we have agreed upon measures for it. And the Chinese success, it hasn't been relentless. They've actually had some ups and downs and some disasters and mixed results. Nonetheless, it has been something that we cannot possibly fail to see. It has implications for everyone around the globe. And so it's been taken notice of. Chinese ideas, uh, however, what cultural or philosophical or moral and ethical superiority would look like, or success or, or progress, that we don't agree on around the world as easily. And so I think it's going to be very difficult for the Chinese to make claims that can be held up and defended that uh, what they have to offer to the world is really uh, superior. Anyway, cultural and ideational change is something that happens more slowly than certainly the kind of economic change we've seen in the last couple of decades in China especially. It's happening all the time. We now know that cultures are not static. They're continually interacting one with the other, and they're borrowing all the time. But most often that's by degrees, and it is often unobserved, or if observed, it's not acknowledged. So if China's rise has been relentless, uh, the economic rise, and this is my third reason for thinking, that the West is not about to be inundated with a victorious rise of Chinese thinking. So too has relentless has been um, the drone of hostile attitudes expressed toward the Chinese, warnings in the West continually, especially since the rise of the Communist Party some 70 years ago now, that what China has thought is dangerous and most ordinary folk that I meet who are not students as an academic, who are well-meaning, right-thinking people, they think they know what Chinese thought it has to offer. I don't know whether they think they learned it from reading newspapers or watching documentaries on television or seeing uh, dramatizations in cinema or reading memoirs of Chinese who had a very bad time in their own culture, but they think they know what Chinese thought leads to and they don't like it. And so I think we're going to hear a lot of opposition in the West to any pretension on the part of the Chinese that they have answers in the moral and ethical and philosophical realm that we should, we should grasp. That's why I think the much more interesting sphere over which to consider this question about the rise in Chinese thought is in the non-West. I mean, the Chinese are now clearly selecting, making a selection from their own very complex, multi-stranded and often self-contradictory, long classical and modern thought traditions. And they are selecting these and putting them forward in order to present a certain image of what they have to offer the rest of the world. So the question is, how is that selection being received first in the rest of Asia, in East, in Central Asia, in Southeast Asia in particular? How is that being received in Sub-Saharan Africa, where China is now such a large presence? And how is it being received among surviving communities of indigenous peoples around the world, from the Andes to the Arctic, I would say, who themselves may have cosmological views that are similar to those that were typified in ancient Chinese thought, holistic relational ontologies that may resonate better with the kinds of historical cultural accomplishments 
in thought that the Chinese would like to put out as their brand. That's, that's me. Thank you. And I think that was a very helpful reminder that there isn't just one thing called Chinese thought. If you look at Chinese thought, it's a great quarrelsome, argumentative, and long tradition. But I, I think one of the things that I think we could usefully explore is, is what are the uses of Chinese thought in contemporary Chinese polity? Because it's been closely associated with political philosophy over time in China. There may be some confusion, too, in China about what Chinese thought is. There was a directive from the Ministry of Education a couple of years ago, which instructed universities to restrict the promotion of foreign ideas. And one brave professor asked the ministry, did that include Karl Marx? <laughs> um, so, you know, there is a kind of absorption of ideas, which then become, if you like, cinified and, and felt to be to be Chinese. But the fact is that, and I mean, if you look ac across the globe, at least we would perceive Western ideas to have been dominant in the last couple of hundred years. And there was a, a loss of confidence in the end of the 19th century in China in Chinese ideas, which was related to the economic position and the position in the world. But why is it? What is that success? Why were they dominant? Was it entirely to do with economic strength? Or was there a kind of philosophical force to that, which was somehow separate from the economy? I'm not sure how accurate it is to say how dominant they've been, as it were. Clearly, they have been taken up a lot. They have had influence. And a, a lot of that reason is probably a response to economic power. As you say, China, which had a very, very long history, and at times had been the richest, most powerful nation uh, in the world, had become a laggard compared with the West, so it looked to those ideas. But I mean, it, what looks like dominance, maybe something a little bit different. I mean, one thing I noticed when I was researching my book on philosophical systems around the world is what, what someone's called the asymmetry of ignorance, which is essentially if you go to anywhere like China or India or Africa, anywhere in, around the world, you'll find that there are people who have an interest in Western philosophy as well as in their own traditions. And they've taken an interest and they've learned from them, often by changing them and adapting them, not simply by importing them wholesale, but by engaging with them in some way. And it hasn't happened the other way around, through lack of interest ourselves. So confident that we've got all the answers that everyone else is behind us, that we haven't looked at it. So if you look at dominance, if you, it's almost like a purely statistical an anomaly in a sense. Western ideas have been discussed more because in the West, they're the only things that are discussed. And outside the West, they are discussed and used as well. Partly, the, the dominance is to do with the, the West's arrogance in not being interested enough in non-Western ideas. If we had been as interested in non-Western ideas as the non-West has been in Western ideas, there wouldn't be that same picture of quite such much dominance, I think. There, there is another kind of obvious answer, which is that the West colonized large parts yeah. of the rest of the world yeah. and not the other way around. So it's, uh, that's a pretty straightforward explanation. Yeah. So it was more successful in propagating its, its systems of thought. You know, you move in, uh, you start up all these schools, you impose legal systems and political orders, and you give them the theory that goes all around that and your ideas are being spread. And also, people can see which side their bread is buttered. If I want to get ahead, I've got to adopt these ideas. And it's no surprise, really. If some aliens came from outer space and kind of started setting up shop here, I might do well to learn how they think and start going along with them. I don't see it as a great surprise at all that this has happened and will probably be diminished as other countries rise up economically and 
can afford to do things their own way. From what you were saying earlier, though, you think that was probably a good thing, but also a moment that's passed since we are losing interest or conviction in our own well, ideas. Maybe not. Because it depends on whether you think that these ideas that I've put forward, the kind of concrete ideas I'm calling the Western ones, really are required. Look, everybody wants to be successful in certain senses. Material wealth and comfort, most, most cultures want, most people want that. And if it's true that there is a connection between the efficient production of that stuff and these ideas that I've called Western, then I'm guessing that those ideas will, in some form, survive to some extent, provided we manage to hold everything together and keep being rich. It won't be a matter of some kind of imperialism. It will just be that people come to think that that is indeed the best way of doing things. And I'm not saying that will happen. I don't like making predictions. I don't really understand. But I, but I think that insofar as they are useful ideas and valuable ideas, they should survive in, in some form. I think Jamie's quite right to point to colonialism and its influence, but Julian is all right, also right to say that that doesn't mean that Western thought was taken in as a whole meal. I think it's been received more as a buffet of different nuggets which are interesting and can be sampled and, and rejected if they don't meet expectations. But I think if colonialism was such an important aspect, as I agree with you it certainly was, then we need to ask why was it Western thought? that fits so well with the colonial model. What was it then? And here I would give an essentially technologically based kind of, of answer. I would say that Western ideas fit well with the kind of technologies that were available during that era. When people were moving around the globe in sail, under sail, and using astrolabs, and then by steamships, and using sextants, and then by submarines, and using sonar, and even by family auto cars. Those were times when the values that we associate with Western thought, humanity as the measure of all things, the individual, empirical investigation, boldness, rationalism, scientific investigation, and free enterprise, individual rights and preferences, rational actors taking bold actions. And these things all fit very well with that kind of technology. And that would lead us then to wonder whether the 21st century technologies that we are coming on now, digitalization, big data collection and mining, robotics, AI, all of these will fit themselves so well to those core values that we think of as unchanging and part of our Western heritage of what we have to offer the world. It might be that individuals would be less well-equipped uh, and uh, it will be large corporations, it will be uh, state corporate groups and enterprises that will be in a position to manage those kinds of technologies, if indeed they're managed at all. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to iai.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month. And there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level.
I just like to tell a story from my native New Zealand. The indigenous people of New Zealand, as you probably know, are the Maori. And the old story you might have told about New Zealand up until, let's say, 20 years ago was a pretty straightforwardly colonial one. One of the least, less nasty episodes in history, but still your normal colonial episode, lots of death, subjugation, and so on. But there's been a, a, something known in New Zealand as the Maori Renaissance over recent years. A lot of Maori have learned to speak the language again. A lot of white people have learned to speak Maori. And there's a new kind of dignity for the, the Maori in New Zealand. And one of the interesting side effects is that a lot of people have started to adopt what you might call traditional Maori worldviews in some, some respects. This is your point. I mean, you might get a high court judge who's a Maori in New Zealand, and he's, you know, he's going along with the British ideas about that. But then I know all sorts of people who now have what you might call Maori ideas about family life, about how funerals should be done. And perhaps the most astonishing example of this is that the New Zealand Parliament recently declared a river in New Zealand, the Whanganui River, to be a legal person. And this came from the Maori idea, pantheism, animist kind of idea about nature that many New Zealanders are now adopting as part of their kind of concern for the environment. And this was enshrined in New Zealand law. So it's a really vivid example of this kind of mixing up and blending of cultures when they come together. I mean, I think also we might look at the distinction between what people actually believe in China and what the state ideas and philosophies are and what different people believe in China. When the 20th century was just beginning, what people were calling for on the street was science and democracy. And that wasn't a result of colonialism. That was a result of a long period of questioning about what had gone wrong in China and how come these barbarians were doing so well when China was doing so badly. So people did begin spontaneously to look at the ideas. But again, the adoption of those ideas at state level doesn't mean that they are universally interpreted at popular level. I, I, one anecdote my former professor used to tell was meeting an old woman in a village in rural China and asking her what she thought of the Communist Party. And she said, it's absolutely wonderful. I love the Communist Party. And when he said land reform or, you know, what was it? She said, no, 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 I didn't know about land reform. But they'd had a weasel fairy that had been plaguing the village and the carter had got rid of the weasel fairy. <laughs> and that's a kind of actually quite characteristic layering of ideas and notions of power onto beliefs which never quite go. There are similar movements which believe that hungry ghosts caused the Cultural Revolution, for example. So you have to kind of, when you look at this history of ideas, take account of very profoundly embedded ideas that don't necessarily relate to the state. We tend to think of these things as kind of state philosophy, particularly in China. Confucianism is a political philosophy. One of the things that I think relates to what you're talking about is what I'd call sort of the rhetorical space in which politics and social life is conducted. So if you take the West, you know, Jamie talked about liberty, equality. These are kind of the terms that, no matter how much we kind of believe in them, or no matter how much our policies actually promote them, this is the way in which we articulate our political discourse. It's the way in which we justify ourselves. And it becomes kind of the background. Now, in the similar kind of way, and you, you'll know this more than me, the great Confucian concept is of harmony and social harmony being very important. And despite the Mao years, the Confucian ideas have still remained very strong. This is the rhetorical space with which the current regime will also talk. Harmony is always being promoted. Does that mean the Confucian ideal of harmony is actually being promoted? A lot of people would say no, because 
harmony in the traditional Confucian sense was supposed to require difference and diversity. So harmony in music requires different instruments playing different notes. It wasn't meant to be about uniformity, whereas a lot of current harmonization policies, a lot of people would say, are actually all about uniformity, bringing uniformity. So there's kind of the ideas themselves, which you can study philosophically and try and work out what they mean, etc. But they also just have this function of that these concepts are the way in which discussions are framed. And they may or may not actually result in policies or actions which support them. But nevertheless, that's the rhetoric. And so you need to understand that kind of rhetorical space in order to understand how people are going to even be talking about things. Vivian, we, we tend to think of, and China tends to encourage the thought that Chinese ideas are both ancient and immutable, which is not really true. But the, the willingness of Chinese thinkers to explore Western ideas in the 20th century, how much of a contribution do you think that made to China's success? The greatest influence of the West was back in the period that you were just, in Chinese thought, was back in the period you were referencing. In the 50s, uh, in the mid, you know. From the mid-19th century through the middle of the 20th century when the Communist Party came to power. And that was a period in which China was, as a political entity, it had many faults and weaknesses. And it was under duress, it was under tremendous duress from Western powers that sought to have influence within it. And at that time, Western thought consisted of so many different strands. I mean, what we were talking about was anarchism and all sorts of strands of socialism, feminism, democracy and scientism, of course, also fascism, anti-fascism, and nationalism, and understanding of the meaning of a nation. And all of these mixed together, I think, to confuse the picture at that time and also had to be laid, had to be processed by, by Chinese thinkers. That was the period when the West was really influential. And what did it get us, or what did it get China? It got China a, a very multivocal kind of philosophical uh, reference base from which to think about its own experience. And it also got it a nation unified under a Western pattern of thought, Marxist, classist, classical analysis, class analysis, not classical class analysis. So um, that was the time. Now, after then they followed 30 years of relative isolation from the West, Western influences, and then a deliberate staged process of opening and catching up with the West, accepting this uh, narrative of progress and the West being advanced and catching up with. But at that point, what did the Chinese look at primarily? I think they looked at science, technology, and corporate practice in the West, which they all thought could be useful. Those were the things that they studied and tried to integrate into their own systems of governance and, and uh, how the party state orders itself and gradually have, have, in a staged and cautious way, taken some of those ideas on board, but not liberty, democracy, and uh, not even fully scientism, because those old ladies out there in the countryside who still see the world in terms of other ontologies are also needing to be governed by the Chinese and they know it. But, but that's also true in the West. I mean, for example, I believe there's a great resurgence of interest in astrology amongst uh, millennials. And astrology doesn't really fit with the scientific approach to life. And if you, your story about going to the country and talking to these people, if you were to talk to, you know, most British people, they wouldn't articulate some coherent kind of a classical liberal 
set of ideas. They've got all sorts of ideas from all over the place. Right. It's kind of like it's the it's the official story about us, and it's the maybe it's the establishment yeah. ideals. But there's a huge range of it's a lot of kind of. I don't, I don't mean this pejoratively, but there's kind of chaos out there. Sure, sure. I mean, I, I want to kind of move, if you like, to the, to, to the contemporary moment, because, you know, China's entering yet another new phase with, with, you know, China goes global, if you like. And the articulation, the contemporary articulation of Chinese political philosophy is of interest to all of us, I think. Chen Cha, the notion of all under heaven, and the notion that the son of heaven governed all under heaven, and all of that is now being rediscussed and re-invoked as a kind of proto-theory of international relations, which, you know, we might have some problems with, I think. And certainly, you know, China, the, the, the contemporary regime, as opposed to when I first went to China, when the past was kind of forbidden territory, is now actively invoking the past as a kind of source of ideas and legitimacy. So what does that add up to? In, even in terms of the two con contending schools of legalism and Confucianism, which have been probably the dominant political philosophies in China for the past couple of millennia, where do they sit in contemporary thought? And how does it relate to barbarian management, which is still a big issue, or in, uh, returning as a big issue in China? You're, 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 well, I mean, you know more about the, in the internal workings of China than, than me. I mean, or maybe, maybe you have the answer. Well, I'm just kind of concerned that, that, you know, China is in the world and is articulating its own theories of how it should relate to the world. And those matter to us. I'm not sure we understand them. I'm not sure that they're fully formed yet. But I'm interested in what you think they, how you think they're emerging and how do they relate to the past? And could they be attractive to non-Chinese? Yes, in short, yes. The one Chinese philosophy that we haven't highlighted so far is uh, Taoism. And I, I really think that uh, Tianxia as a concept and the mandate of heaven, which we associate with Confucianism because the Confucianists were so much more successful in advertising and themselves, it, is really at, at heart, um, it, it stems from a Taoist philosophy and it, it has to do with harmony, as Julian was saying. It has to do with hearing the tone, the sound, the musical sound and vibration of the, of the universal and putting that through the imperial vessel, the emperor, and then radiating it out to bring about harmony throughout everything all under heaven. This is a mystical but also a seriously imagined philosophy of governance in China. And I do think that the Chinese contemporary leaders will draw on that as they approach peoples and problems around the world. And how successful they are depends probably on which issue clusters we're looking at. If we're thinking of climate change, climate crisis, how to make our world whole again, put humanity back in some kind of proper relationship to uh, ecology and nature, I think that many people are going to find a kind of inspiration that can be translatable from, from China. If uh, we're thinking about how to deal with gross inequalities in access to basic key resources around the world, for example, Chinese habits of thinking over the very, very, very long term and of planning over wide, wide, vast areas of space these hold a lot of lessons that I think other governments and peoples around the world may find quite attractive. 
if you haven't seen it, just Google the plans for the, the Chinese state grid's idea of setting up a global ultra-high voltage grid around the, all of, including South America and lots of other places. But those ideas don't seem to be hugely successful within China at the moment. I mean, I wouldn't describe it as a harmonious place if you look at Xinjiang or Xizang. Well, Isabel, I think the Chinese know that governing their country is uh, a near impossibility. Governing their own empire has never been easy. And although they like to look at ease, they also want others to realize how hard it is, the task that they're accomplishing. What they say they would like us to regard them with mutual respect, that relations should be based on mutual respect. But I really think what Chinese authorities would like to provoke in people is something more akin to awe, awe at the ability that they continually come up with to keep that system not harmonious, but holding together in spite of all of the challenges that they do, that they do face. Do you, do you see this as a battle of ideas? Is it one system fighting another? Uh, no, I don't. I don't, th well, I don't think battles of ideas happen in that way. So this idea that you say this and I say that and one of us wins the argument. I don't even think science works that way, actually. What happens is that people act on the basis of certain ideas and they get certain outcomes. And those outcomes are superior, if you want to say it, or preferred, it doesn't really matter. That's how the battle takes place, indirectly, through the effects of the ideas. And it, as, it takes a very long time. And it's never exactly clear who's won when and exactly what way. But I, they, I, I don't like this idea of a battle of ideas. It's, a, it's, it's not even a battle. It's more like golf, you know? In golf, you don't actually interact with the other player. You just try to get your balls in quicker. It's not like boxing or tennis. It's more like golf. You don't even have to have a winner. At any point in history, there are lots of ideas blowing around, lots of different ways of doing things all around the world. And I don't need, think we need to say, well, these guys have won. Uh, that's the right one. So that, that's how I see these things. I mean, I, I kind of agree with that. I've got, I've got a metaphor, which is imperfect, but I think it kind of works quite well, which is that there's always a tendency to think of, you know, Eastern ideas, Western ideas, and setting things up as these sort of discrete sets. And what I think you find is when you look all, all around the world and all through history, in a way, I have, the metaphor I've got is of a, a, record, a mixing desk in a recording studio. So bear with this, because it'll make sense in a minute. So if you were recording music, what you do is you record each instrument into a different channel. And then when you're producing the final record or download, you adjust the levels of each instrument to the correct volume so that the overall sound is how you like it. Now, I think there's this kind of social and political kind of mixing desk, right? I mean, the idea that there's no interest in liberty or, in, or freedom in China is obviously not true. It is there. Historically, it's been turned down a bit, though. Harmony has been turned up more. In our culture, harmony has been turned down. In fact, turned down so much that we don't really have a word for it. We don't invoke it in, in political discourse. But people kind of know harmony matters as well as those other things. So in a way, I think what you kind of discover by this comparative exercise is that there's a kind of a, you know, there's this whole range of things that we value in society. And it's the volumes that are turned up in the different mixes. So the future isn't going to be about which one do we adopt. By listening to other cultures, we may find ourselves thinking, hang on, that's a good idea. We'll adjust our own a little bit in, in response. And I think there are some backlashes against 
what are seen as the excesses of individualism can be seen in those terms. We want to turn down the volume a little bit on individual liberty and individualism and turn up a volume a bit on other things. But we don't want to give up individualism. We don't want to give up liberty because they're too important to do that. It's your turn. <laughs>